नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार वर्क पॉडकास्ट इट्स योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा माय गेस्ट टुडे इज डॉक्टर विक्रम संपत डॉक्टर संपत इज द ऑथर ऑफ फोर अक्लेम बुक्स splendors of royal mysore the untold story of the wodeyars my name is gohar khan the life and times of a musician by the way you know the same thing was picked up and made into a movie too if you guys don't know i'm just letting you know and the voice of veena s balachander a biography his latest book is the first volume of a two volume biography savarkar echoes from a forgotten past by the way today's podcast is going to focus on the first volume which uh, uh, is one of the best books i've re- ever written uh, read uh, in my opinion Vikram was awarded the Sahitya Academy's first Yuva Puraskar in English Literature and the ARSC International Award for Excellence in Historical Research in New York for his book on Gohar Khan. Vikram was amongst the four writers and artists to be selected as a writer in residence at Rashtrapati Bhavan in 2015. Vikram has a doctorate in history and music from the University of Queensland, Australia, and a senior and is a senior research fellow. at the Nehru Memorial Museum and Library in New Delhi. He's also an Aspen Global Leadership fellow and I and an Eisenhower fellow he is a trained carnatic vocalist by the way that's very interesting he has established the archive of indian music india's first digital sound archive for vintage recordings and is the founder director of the bengaluru literature festival indic thoughts festival and the z groups earth a culture fest so without further ado vikram thanks a lot for coming on the podcast Thank you, Kushal. Very good evening, and it's uh, it's such a pleasure to be on your podcast. I've been catching up with so many of your earlier episodes, and it's a pity that uh, thanks to my tardiness, I've come on your show so late. <laughs> and I apologize right at the outset for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's uh, uh, and I'm I'm saying this. I told this to you offline. I think when I read your book, like I I told you this offline, and I have to say this on the record too. When I was starting the book, and when I reached chapter two. i could not control myself i have to mail this guy right away what a book and i remember <laughs> writing that email to you and i like man i've just finished two chapters it's an amazing book and let me say this for a fact that it is one of the finest books i have read so vikram let's start with this my, my first question and i always ask this question to every book author and a writer so why did you decide to take savarkar as a project up and that too your project is not a one book it is a two volume project right so why yeah. savarkar so what what were you going through what was going on in your head when you decided okay let me write a two volume book uh, book <laughs> series on savarkar to be honest actually kushal i, I was hoping for a three volume biography and <laughs> <laughs> not limited to two and initially it was three uh, then of course my publishers penguin random house india they came down very heavily on it saying you know we uh, it's uh, not one of amish's trilogy or ashwin sanghi's uh, mystery thil- thrillers or something that it's going to run for a course for three volumes so but then the problem was a problem of plenty because there was so much of material that i had gathered from the archives from uh, not only within india but uh, across the world uh and this was i think a story that was just dying to be told uh and you know i've mentioned it in other you know fora as well as in the book itself that you know the last biography that was written of savarkar was uh, way back in the 1960s when he was still alive and by this man called dhananjay keer who was one of his uh, you know close associates so obviously he was also relying on his own subject to get uh, material for his book so it's uh, i mean to be very honest and with due respect uh, it's it's largely hagiographical and you know every uh, every page almost extols savarkar to be a real superhuman kind of a figure so um, so be that as it may at least it collates the entire you know fa- uh, the 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 
fabric of his life the narrative that is put together uh, in that book but then from the 1960s till 2019 when this book came out uh, it really uh, you know astonishes me it also saddens me that a person who is so important uh, in contemporary indian politics uh, who as the progenitor of this new uh, political philosophy of hindutva uh, which is in the ascendant in the country um, in various uh, you know levels at the states in the center and among people and who has so many opponents and whose name gets invoked uh, you know almost in every election rally you have the bjp uh, uh, going to town in maharashtra elections saying we'll give bharat ratna to uh, savarkar as a part of the manifesto someone else says something else there's a uh, congress governments in rajasthan chatisgarh who remove his name from the textbooks then all kinds of uh, circus that keeps happening around his name uh, you know there are defamation suits that uh, ranjit savarkar his grand nephew then files and so uh, this keeps playing out in the news all the time and the side effect is uh, yeah i get invited to these raucous uh, news debates which i have stopped going to because there's no point <laughs> uh, but uh, you know despite here being a very very polarizing figure uh, and i say that only because he polarizes opinions so much either uh, to those who love him to the extreme or who hate him to the extreme uh, it really su- surprises me that the intellectual output that has gone into understanding him his uh, life his philosophy his thoughts is almost next to zilch uh, even sadly among his uh, proponents you know though they've really not bothered to to kind of uh, read through what he has uh, said because i i understand the the difficulty one is a lot of it is in marathi uh, his original writings and the number of uh, you know there's a samagra savarkar samagra vangmay which runs to about 10 volumes 6000 7000 pages of literature uh, on a wide range of topics and uh, he was so many things in his uh, long and stormy life a poet um, a playwright a, a statesman an ideologue a journalist Uh, all of that so so to even understand assimilate and then um, you know try to kind of condense all of that and distill all of that all of his views is not an easy task and so maybe many people did not take uh, take up the uh, you know the task of uh, even those who were supporting him because it it takes a lot of effort to do that so uh, i think that is what uh, always you know my my earlier characters to have been those uh, who are either maligned or who are misunderstood or forgotten <laughs> you know uh, whether it was gohar jahan or balachander or anybody the wadeyars of my sort so here was a man who of course the the i mentioned it several times and in the book too that the the trigger was uh, uh the great mr manishankar ayer who uh, created this entire uh, <laughs> you know fracas about uh, uh, you know calling him a traitor and throwing away the plaque that uh, uh, atal ji's government had installed in port blair um at the kalapani where he was incarcerated and ever since you've seen uh, the the accusations and all of that that goes uh, you know around him so i really wanted to understand i think and i think that's a historian's burden somewhere to also ensure that uh, that the documents that are already there in the public realm that are staring at us in your face and almost dying to be told as i said they need to be brought out to the public and then uh, it's up to the readers who are discerning enough to make up their mind whether they after reading all of that after going through all of that you continue to hate the man or disagree in parts agree in parts totally eulogize him that is completely each individuals in uh, you know uh, path that they can take themselves but before even hating a person please read about him or her so i think that uh, uh, becomes important and that was my driving force uh, to to get on this project 
So that, that that that's fantastic. So that takes me to my next question, and and I think it's very important. So so you used very critical words here, a historian's burden, right? So so I, I want to ask you this. So so it may not necessarily be this book, but this could be a more generic question also because this is a tricky hmm. one, right? When you're talking and writing about personalities from the past. So so Vikram, how does one make sure that we control? uh for the biases right so look vikram we all are human beings or we tend to have one biases uh, some kind of bias bias when we are looking at the material uh, mm. and especially in a country like india you just mentioned right uh, how the nanjakiers was a hagiography i mean yeah. we have a very binary way of looking at our freedom fighters right in india not just savarkar for that matter even if it is gandhi or nehru or whatever right whatever historical mm. figure we have in our country we tend to have a very binary way of looking at it so how yeah. did you make sure to you know cut through that narrow lane and develop the nuanced lens when we are looking at our freedom fighters and the figures from our past yeah that's a very pertinent question and i think it's it's uh, it's very important to and it's true of a biographer in any case you know uh, because in the course of the of any biography you're so much in awe of your subject uh, that uh, you know you i always keep saying that it's almost like falling in love you know uh, because you yeah. you're so you're so fond of the subject and that's why you put your time your effort your money and everything into uh, the whole process and it's very easy to slip down the path of uh, becoming like a spokesperson or a uh, lawyer for the for the person and particularly for a for a uh, personality like savarkar uh, and i don't know if uh, that's the image uh, that has gotten uh, <laughs> built over the last one year but then i really i don't i think savarkar deserves better he doesn't need me as a lawyer uh, for him but then uh, the, the the issue is to put uh facts if you've seen uh, you've read the book obviously and i'm sure the re, uh, the viewers too have uh, some of them would have the 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 bibliography the end notes all of that run to about 150 pages in in themselves which kind of clearly shows that this is putting into public realm uh documents of of all varieties uh, through uh, you know authorized sources so uh, it's really not just talking about one person's view i'm also trying to recreate the times in which uh, you know he lived and what could have driven him to uh, take certain decisions or do certain things that he did so it uh, it it's it's i think therefore a very comprehensive view of the times the 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 the, the political situation the socio cultural uh, atmosphere all of that which goes to make savarkar what he did uh, what he became so uh, i think that is one way of uh, in which i personally tried my level best to ensure that there's also a critical uh, understanding of uh, of him uh, where uh, especially now while i'm working through volume 2 i'm also uh, seeing that there are number of issues on which i don't agree with him and and honestly a historian is not a judge uh, or an arbiter where uh, i don't need to sit and give him certificates of uh, this or that and so uh there are so while while put penning the narrative down some of those uh, the the analysis of what uh, could have been done better and could have uh, the situation could have been handled much better all that also comes into picture like even in the i think volume 1 i have been um, critical of him in several uh, instances about uh, some of his views which i thought were too uh, ahead of their times and he was probably being too foolhardy in trying to uh, you know imagine that uh, indian society is is open for the kind of reforms or for the kind of changes uh, you know in such a uh, cataclysmic manner that everything is shaken by its foundations so uh, so i think that is important where you don't become a 
a spokesperson um, uh, a kind of a defendant for everything but where things have to be defended uh, or where things have to be put in perspective rather than being defensive uh, for instance all those mercy petitions and all those other contentious issues i think there the biographer's duty is to put all those facts into perspective so so let's uh, let's break this now into three parts today's discussion uh, i do want to address the mercy petition part but i want to keep that in the end of the podcast yeah. because that is because before the mercy petition i think we can't do justice to the mercy petition angle until and unless we don't talk about the horrors which you have you know you have narrated quite deeply and quite extensively in the middle chapters of the book right where you address the horrors uh, savarkar faced in andaman uh, in the jail itself and and i think the major part of this book is about his life uh, in in the jail and then just when he came out of the jail just after that till, uh, till that period so could mm-hmm. uh, so for, for the listeners and the viewers uh, could you uh, just give us a brief uh, you know introduction or a sneak peek into the horror savarkar faced in in, in while he was in jail because mm-hmm. we never understand the mercy petition angle until we don't understand the horror savarkar faced in the jail right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. true maybe before that it might also be opportune to just give like a like a way for those who might not know much uh, uh, about him as yet so a little uh, you know pen sure. picture of his biography till the time he lands in jail uh, you know he was uh, so savarkar was born vinayak damodar savarkar was born in a chitpavan brahmin family in uh, uh, bhagur village in nashik on 28th of may 1883 uh, and the uh, uh, the middle of three brothers ganesh damodar vinayak and then of course narayan rao and they had a sister maina as well very early in life he loses his mother to cholera and sooner his father also to uh, to the dreaded plague uh, the epidemic that was raging in uh, different parts of india and particularly maharashtra and quite incidentally the epidemic diseases act which have, has now been clamped on india uh, for covid uh, was something that was enacted then by the british in 1897 uh, to combat plague and the repressive measures the plague measures that the british uh, you know adopted gave rise to a sense of nationalism and a revolutionary stream the radical stream of nationalism in uh, several parts of india particularly maharashtra and bengal and in maharashtra the whole championing of this was done by the chafekar brothers uh, who killed the the uh, plague commissioner of uh, pune and that led to um, you know a lot of uh, tumult in different parts of maharashtra because they were executed and young savarkar who was just about 12 13 then had uh, was so deeply moved and touched by this episode that he sits in front of the uh, family deity uh, the ashtabhuja bhavani and takes uh, a pledge that uh, till the till my last breath i will keep fighting and killing the enemy uh, never said i will die myself but i will keep killing my enemy and he follows up this vow also by uh, actually uh for forming india's first ever organized secret society of young people uh which was initially called the rashtra bhakta samuha later it becomes the mitra mela and then transforms itself into the abhinav bharat and very very in a very short span of time the abhinav bharat spreads its tentacles across uh different cities and towns of maharashtra and also starts making linkages with other uh, provinces of india again particularly bengal and later punjab and you know this again is a travesty in our history textbooks where the revolutionary stream has been shown almost as individual acts of uh, foolhardy kind of bravery and uh, there was so true. there was no strategy there was no coordination but here were these group of people uh, who in a 
time and age when there was no social media or whatsapp groups to communicate they were actually uh, you know communicating across uh, provinces and the whole idea that uh, they all formed was based on at least savarkar's idea of the secret society was based not on marx uh, or uh, the revolutionary ideas of karl marx but on the italian uh, revolutionaries mazzini and garibaldi and others who formed the young italy so the the principle was very uh, was the same where can we in some way instigate a rebellion in the army uh, the british indian army uh, which had a majority of indians uh, you know serving there so uh, quite like what happened in the 1857 uprising which really had scared the british uh, you know uh, of their wits so can we instigate that sort of a rebellion in the army and once that is affected then the empire would come crashing down so that was the fundamental uh, principle on which these secret societies operated then he goes to pune then at the ferguson college he does his graduation and even there he uh, the, the first ever student bonfire in india of uh, foreign clothes uh, was uh, conducted by savarkar there's still a place in pune uh, where that uh, uh, you know to commemorate where the bonfire was held with tilak and paranj pay of the karl newspaper and savarkar and others so though the the usual image we have is that of mahatma gandhi in the swadeshi boycott but here was somebody else who did it uh, much before him and uh, also um, got rusticated from the college for doing this uh, but this didn't deter him he goes on to get a very uh, prestigious scholarship from london uh, from this amazing you know philanthropist uh, for revolutionaries called shamji krishna verma who is giving scholarship to young people to come over to europe uh, and carry on the liberation movement for india sitting in europe and that was important because uh, in india the sedition laws were so uh, you know strong and so oppressive that you couldn't write do anything against uh, the government whereas while in europe they, they could do all this so that's why many other people including madam bhikaji kama and sardar singh rana uh, and others were there in europe uh, doing this entire movement for india and in the india house that uh, shamji krishna verma had set up it, uh, with savarkar as the leader that almost becomes like a hotbed of sedition uh, and revolutionary movement where on the one hand he is also providing an intellectual corpus to the freedom movement to the revolutionary movement particularly by translating mazzini's biography into marathi and then doing a seminal work called uh, which he called the first war of indian independence using british records uh, in the archives uh, doing research for two long years and then putting this whole thing together in the form of a book uh, and mm. for the first time calling it that and not the sepoy mutiny as it was disparagingly called by the british to uh, to kind of deprecate its uh, you know uh, importance uh and then this book then becomes also like a bible an inspiration for revolutionaries several decades after the book was published in 1909 to bhagat singh to sukhdev rajguru and later to netaji subhashchandra bose and rash bihari bose so he does all that then bomb manuals uh, are procured from other uh, places because the uh, indians could not own arms so arms had to be smuggled uh, from europe so browning pistols and bombs and how to make bombs themselves and copies of these bomb manuals go to different parts of india again smuggled across from london to uh, brought back here uh, they go to the uh, to bengal where you know the entire anushilan samiti that is there of uh, you know uh, aurobindo ghosh and barin ghosh yeah. khudiram bose all of them the same copy is found there and that leads to the alipur bomb case and then uh, a copy is also found uh, with uh, in nashik where this young man anant lakshman kanhere uh, kills the nashik district magistrate so uh, in the entire investigation that the british do they then trace back that where the common uh, you know literature that's been found in all these places 
traces back to this puny little man sitting far away in london trying to uh, you know appear like a law student but someone who was certainly more dangerous uh, yeah. on the one they were of course uh, tried his elder brother ganesh uh, damodar and packed him off to uh, kalapani uh, two years before they did uh, that to savarkar and then the needle of suspicion goes back there and there too in fact in london there is a political assassination and incidentally yesterday 17th of august uh, was the martyrdom day of madanlal dhingra as uh, one of savarkar's associates who kills uh, curzon wiley there in london so there are suddenly you know simultaneous explosions happening in bengal in maharashtra in their very uh, you know doorstep in london and that alarms the british and so they uh, they have determined that this man whom they then categorized as a d category or a dangerous criminal he is then at any cost uh, extradited to india because um, there was no clear cut evidence of him sending those pistols or bombs so he would have got away if the trial had happened in europe whereas in india as i said the sedition laws being what they were they were sure that he could be packed off from mainland india for the longest time so in a very very unfair manner the fugitive and offend of a uh, fugitive and offenders act is put on him whereas he was actually a bona fide student who had gone there on scholarship so all uh, and then we know the entire story of how when the ship docks at uh, masai in france he jumps off uh, uh, jumps ship and then swims ashore and uh, that itself becomes a case uh, like what we are facing with kulbushan jadhav uh, between india and pakistan then this yeah. is the case that happens between britain and france uh, as to who's who has the legal claim over savarkar and so uh, britain somehow armed twists france so badly because they wanted possession of this man and uh, france loses the case and savarkar is tried he's not even given an, a, a, an appeal a jury or anything and it's a fixed match and so he's given one of the harshest punishments that probably uh, any uh, freedom fighter got uh, other than execution of course which was uh, two transportations for life uh, amounting to 50 long years uh, at the dreaded indian bastille uh, kalapani in uh, cellular jail so that clearly showed and i mean uh, in the book too i've mentioned how uh, people like churchill and others have written that at any cost we want this man back in india and uh, he's too dangerous for comfort uh, to be let alone like that because it's going to inspire a lot more revolutionaries to get on to the violent uh, path so that was savarkar's journey uh, from childhood till the time he actually reach reaches uh, fort blair so now let us get into fort blair because until unless we don't tell the listeners the mm. torture he faced and you know when i was reading that the narration of the torture it shook me to my core i mean how inhuman can the british be this this is a, you know we talk about the barbarian nature of people in the medieval times or you know the times before we we talk about the barbarian nature of the religious uh, zealots and we we had but this is the so called modern enlightened uh, british raj <laughs> that is coming and the way they were treating this human being obviously i don't want you to narrate everything because it's too rich too gory to even narrate like when i was reading it i won't lie that mere man mein maine galiyan nahi di like hmm. it was a natural reaction ki matlab seedha wo badi wali gali nikalti thi ki what the hell were you guys doing i mean ek insaan ke sath kya kar rahe ho aap so just so that people get an idea of what that man went through in jail could you give us a few examples of that yeah sure sure uh, 
yeah it's it's very very it's a saddening thing that i need to do but i think it's it's a duty and responsibility because i keep saying that we are such an ungrateful nation forget uh, the fact that we uh, you know even um, you know um, listen to these tortures we've conveniently forgotten that the names also there were more than 100 uh, you know political prisoners who were lodged there in cellular jail uh, from maharashtra largely from bengal and some from punjab uh, and Uh, interestingly none of the congress uh, workers were ever sent through the cellular jail it was only the revolutionaries uh, who had to bear the maximum kind of punishment and that was the maximum anyone could ever get uh, you know and i think you know retrospectively when i see the freedom struggle there was almost like a hierarchy of uh, punishment that the british were giving uh, so if uh, the worst was of course execution the, the second uh, worst and probably worse than execution because there at least you are gone in a jiffy but uh, to live through torture was to be sent to kalapani and then of course there were other intermediate things like mandalay in uh, burma and other places they were sending them to eden and all those places and then you had the next uh, rung of uh, you know the stately jails whether it was aga khan palace or the naini jail and i will not get into who were the inmates there but uh, you know th- th- that strata of jails and then some who never went to jail at all uh, notably uh, you know members of the muslim league and people like mr jinnah and others so there were there were a hierarchy of people who were actually uh, you know part of the freedom struggle drama that was going on for so long in india coming to port blair and the kalapani uh, so uh, it was almost what, 12 years that uh, this man suffered incarceration there and not only for him but for all the others i mean even the basic human needs that uh, one expects uh, were not provided to them and like good food or clean drinking water or medical facility if you fall ill uh, the 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 food was usually basi khana and in that there would be pieces of uh, reptiles and uh, all kinds of things that would be there and eating that most often all the the prisoners would end up with diarrhea uh, and there was only fixed timings when one could actually uh, go to the toilet uh, which uh, you know you couldn't go as you pleased and with diarrhea if you felt the need to visit uh, several times then the only option was that most of them had to defecate in their cells uh and to sit and stand and sleep and eat amidst that squalor uh it was i think i don't know uh it's it's just uh, too terrible to even recount and disgusting uh, disgusting yeah and today you know in in lockdown with all our comforts we find it so difficult to live in isolation uh though we are in comfort of our homes with families and all of that but here uh, right from the time he went in savarkar was put in for several months six six months continuous in solitary confinement and where the only human contact was that his cell even if now if those who go to the cellular jail they would see that his cell opened up to the gallows so he would see you know prisoners screaming and shouting and being led to their execution uh, so in all ways you know try to break the spirit of the man he was a great poet uh, but then none of the prisoners were ever given pen and paper uh, to write and so he would write uh, you know verses of almost 6000 words lines uh, of uh, you know poem poetry kamala saptarshi etc from marathi which he would inscribe on the walls of the cell and to spite him this jailer that inhuman uh, barry would come and whitewash the the walls in front of his eyes little did he know that this man had such an elephantine memory that he would uh, memorize all of that come out of jail and then actually you know get those poems published then you had this uh, terrible uh, you know torture of uh, kolhu kolhu uh, kabel where 
you know uh, the oil grinding machine where instead of the bullock the freedom fighter would be put to one end of the uh, machine and all day in the blazing heat of port blair they go round and round and then uh, extract about 30 pounds of uh, oil and at the end of the day that would be measured and if it did not match up then you were whiplashed you were not given food to eat and even while you were doing that entire chore uh, you would you would perspire so much you would want water even water would the basic thing that you know while you're doing such physical uh, work you need water even that was not uh, provided to them water to take a clean bath uh, it was not provided most of them would have leeches and skin rashes and all of that and uh, the gunny sacks that they had to uh, gunny sack uh, clothes that they had to wear would lead to further you know skin diseases and all that and fetters that were put uh, standing uh, fetters cross bars where you just put put in a standing position for weeks and days on end uh, this was the kind of torture that uh, most of the prisoners they faced and that's why i also recount not only i mean savarkar's own accounts from his book maji janmathe or my transportation for life but also ulaskar dat and barin ghosh and others who were there their accounts to have listed where they're all unanimous in the kind of uh, uh most inhuman most intolerable uh, tortures that they were given and that's why several others like indu bhushan roy uh, this young man commits suicide uh, ulaskar dat himself goes senile and there was in fact a separate there was a new asylum that the british had created in port blair at this place called hado island uh, because so mm. many people were going were losing their sanity and they they would actually prefer uh, death to this living hell so uh, so when one even one even now when one just goes to the cellular jail and uh, there's that light and sound show which is not great shakes anyway but even whatever it is if one listens to that and also you know just kind of walk through those uh, ramparts of the cellular jail uh, you're left so deeply disturbed and you're you're left disturbed as i said for two reasons one is of course the suffering that these our ancestors faced to ensure that you and i uh breathe uh, freely today in india yeah uh, the second yes. part which is more terrible is that we have forgotten them we don't even know their names uh the cellular jail should have been like a, along with jallianwala bagh and all these places should have been places of pilgrimage in free india Absolutely. and every history uh, class should have had field trips uh, you know to these places to actually let children soak into what it has uh, you know led them to uh, enjoy the way they are today and what all sacrifices have gone behind uh, this uh, hard one freedom so it's very very sad that that has not happened we've uh, we not we don't even remember the names of those hundreds of people there's a plaque there which lists the names of all these people uh, most people don't even stand there to spend enough time to read each and every name and you know mentally just say a word of thanks and gratitude to this these souls uh, who suffered for our cause so i think that becomes very 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 distressing of how ungrateful we are as a nation and how wonderfully we forget our own history uh, and so nicely we can be manipulated to believe anything else uh, you know and so true so ju- just bef- so before i go into the next part i i have to ask this so when you were going through this research paper and you were traveling extensively and doing your rounds and looking around reading these things i have to ask this because yeah, I think it's my duty to ask you how did you feel when you yourself were reading all of this <laughs> Yeah I think it was it, it was deeply deeply emotional and I remember going to Port Blair uh, particularly Port Blair and uh, you know and coming back to the hotel room and it 
i really need needed to compose myself and for for no rhyme or reason or for a rhyme or reason i actually broke down and i just couldn't even have my dinner that night uh, and it was almost haunting me those voices from those cells and uh, you know those unheard screams and creatures of so many people who have uh, undergone whatever they did there uh, and also yeah in london so to see all these papers to see the way i spent a lot of time in london and also in france in germany etc to get uh, material ar- around the revolutionary movement and there too it was like uh, you know this is this is uh, all there in the public space and public realm and why on earth has this not you know been brought out uh, to 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 the people of this country and kushal i think you know we are we are in august and we've just two days after our independence day and uh, it's it's such a travesty with truth that as a nation we still don't know what brought us our freedom uh, yeah. <laughs> we don't see the need to uh, investigate into that as well so immediately after freedom as well uh, people themselves were alarmed the, the main protagonist too uh, you know including um, dr ambedkar in that uh, famous uh, you know interview of his to the bbc i think in 1955 he mentions we were all those of us who were in the in various capacities in the freedom movement we were alarmed as to why Uh, the british suddenly decided to uh, give us freedom because right from 1939 since the outbreak of the war the the negotiations were always on on uh, whether we'll go for a dominion status whether it will be a uh, what sort of an arrangement between uh, india and uh, britain uh, the overall british commonwealth all kinds of things that were being discussed a new constitution following up on the 1935 government of india act so all this was being discussed but suddenly and the 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 quit india movement too had tapered off by 43 by 44 gandhi had already issued public statements saying he had no more interest in uh, embracing the british or uh, doing any civil disobedience to and that he would he and the congress would actually support the the british efforts in the war so there was nothing things that actually come back to status quo so what on earth yes. shook the british to to take this uh, uh, the big leap and so ambedkar himself prophesizes that uh, the this was because of the indian national army that uh, netaji subhash chandra bose and rash bihari bose had uh, you know strove so hard to build and uh, the royal indian uh, mutiny in the, in the the naval mutiny in the navy in the air force in the army units in jabalpur in madras the navy in bombay all of these uh, really really shook the british uh, from their uh, you know slumber that you know they had, they were two and a half million indian uh, soldiers uh, in the british indian army uh, during the time of independence and they were controlled by british overlords who were just about 40000 uh, who were european uh, you know um, and british so if two and a half million of them go in a rebellion against these 40000 there was no way in hell that uh, they could be controlled and this was yes. a repeat of 1857 which the british were always petrified of and always wanted uh, you know to to safeguard against in fact including the the formation of the congress itself was on that premise as to how to create this safety wall so that 1857 doesn't repeat itself uh, when mm-hmm. ao hume and others found, found, founded the congress so uh, and there's another interesting anecdote of uh, clement attlee the british prime minister when he comes to india uh, i think 1956 and he's in calcutta he's staying with uh, the governor the, the chief justice of uh, the calcutta high court who's also the acting governor of bengal uh, mr chakraborty justice chakraborty and then chakraborty asks him as to mr attlee you were the one who signed this whole transfer of power and what why was it that uh, you did this 
and actually uh, actually says that uh, it was netaji uh, subhash chandra bose and the indian army which uh, indian national army which is what made them so uh, you know petrified and mount batten was given this uh, explicit order that from the wreckage just salvage as much as you can and get back to uh, to britain and then uh, chakraborty also c- continues to probe and asks uh, atli saying uh, what was the impact of the non violent movement and of uh, quit india movement and of gandhi and in chakraborty's own words uh, you know atli you know like makes a uh, sarcastic smile and with the, this thing he says me ni mal so <laughs> so so it is uh, i'm just stating on the the facts on record uh, whether or not you or i agree with that that's another issue but then the, uh, the larger point is uh, you know 73 years have passed we'll soon be celebrating 75 we still don't even uh, think as a nation to know uh, that uh, what were the why did the british give up their most prized co- uh, colony in the whole world which was india and uh, we've never felt the need as a nation to investigate that or go into the core of it how many people in india or uh, children or the textbooks or so on talk about the naval mutiny and it's still called a mutiny uh, whereas 1857 thanks to savarkar was at least the the nomenclature was changed but what happened with the ina is still called a mutiny we still and today 18th august again a moment momentous day where uh, uh, we are made to believe that this was the day subhash chandra bose was killed in a, a, a air air explosion which again has not been solved so we've just left all these uh, you know mysteries of our past of our freedom struggle uh, let's not even go way back into ancient history and medieval history just these few years leading up to freedom and the people who actually contributed uh, to get us what we are today uh, we've not bothered to to do any kind of rnd on that and that is very very uh, very distressing uh, as a, it speaks a lot about us as a nation and as a civilization that's so true so so i just want to i think uh, the perfect segue now would be to address the biggest uh, uh, what they say elephant in the room the petitions <laughs> because now that we have explained what the man went through and what were the circumstances uh because obviously you have left the copies of the petition uh, word for word in the appendices of, of the book itself uh, if i remember correctly either it was the first or the second one i don't remember which appendix appendix it was but uh, so let's let's not talk about it uh, you know i don't want to take names of personalities who have gone about talking about uh, but you should talk about the the petition savarkar wrote i mean some famous bollywood personalities also keep talking about it on twitter all the time as if that's the only stick they have to beat savarkar with so mm. w- what is it about the petitions because i want to address the social issues after this because a lot of live viewers have also asked similar questions on the social issues so let us mm. now address uh, and uh, let's do a, 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 a sort of a deep dive into the petitions what's the fuss about the petitions i know i i don't know i've addressed this so many times online offline but still this keeps haunting because some people just want uh, don't want uh, uh, you know light to be the best disinfectant at all <laughs> and you know you can keep on saying a lie several times and then that becomes uh, uh, you know truth so the the, the whole first i first of all i don't even call it a mercy petition it is just a petition because it was not a mercy uh, if you see the actual text of the petitions too he never apologizes for Uh, anything uh, but then in uh, all through like a good lawyer he is arguing this case and it was a very normal procedure that was made available for everybody uh, you know not only it was not some uh, special right that was given only to savarkar it was 
it was available to political prisoners in india and also all of britain's colonies that political prisoners like today uh, too right i mean even an uh, even a kasab or a uh, yakub memon can till the time they are executed there is a presidential pardon uh, you know uh, option that all of them have they can keep on going to the last till the time they are executed so that sort of uh, petitioning itself was a legal remedy that was available to everybody it was not a exclusive uh, gift that was given to savarkar that is point one the second was he was arguing he was a student of law he knew what were the boundaries of law what were the loopholes of it and how that could be used to free himself as well as the other prisoners who were lodged in kalapani and so he was constantly asking them can you uh, you know clarify what our position is uh, according to the law uh, are we a common prisoner because along with them other people the most hardened criminals from india you know mass murderers and rapists and dacoits and these uh, kind of people the the thugs and others they would be sent to uh, kalapani so but even for them uh, 6 months was the maximum time they would be given these kind of horrendous punishments after that if they actually showed any good behavior or improvement they were let off in the colonies uh, in port blair they could bring their families uh, there settle down in the settlements uh, do farming do all kinds of things like that uh, in port blair uh, whereas for the political prisoners there was no end in sight how long are you going to keep doing the koluka bell punishment for years and years without any end in sight so his constant thing was if we are a uh, common prisoner even those common prisoners as per the jail manual have uh, some kind of uh, you know concessions that will be given to them are we eligible for that if so when how what are the terms if not if i am a political prisoner according to the uh, the charter of indian jails in the indian uh, mainland and not in port blair uh, there also remission is given there are certain concessions we get like these people were could not write read and write whereas political prisoner had to get a newspaper had to get pen paper they could meet their families they could write letters on and off they could write to newspapers all this they could do which people like gandhi nehru and others were doing constantly so whereas uh, here these were not allowed so so can you clarify this we cannot be disadvantaged on both sides of the spectrum as a political prisoner too and as a common convict too. so first clarify my position that was the second part the third aspect was uh, you know shortly after going to port blair uh, savarkar and his brother they start some uh, hideous campaign of starting bomb manufacture in port blair as well and that comes out and the british are quite alarmed and they send uh, someone from the home department uh, sir reginald cradock who comes all the way to port blair and he interviews all these uh, main you know leaders of the 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 active group within the prisoners and he interviews savarkar and in his official record cradock writes that i interviewed this man and he seems to show no remorse or repentance uh, for what he has done uh, earlier and so but then he continues to argue his case as to give me my due when it comes to you know uh, whatever remission and concessions are due to me in the law why should i not get it and his constant uh, you know plea was uh, there's no there's nothing achieved by rotting in a jail like that if you're being executed many people say oh but bhagat singh got executed now the prisoner is not going to choose the punishment uh, that is meted to him so uh, if savarkar were to be given the punishment of execution would he still have filed a petition god alone knows because that's just conjecture but uh, in the normal process 50 years sit, sitting there and doing kolu uh, punishment all day uh, it's such a waste of your life and your youth and which you can put to better use uh, in the service of the country which he was telling all the other prisoners as well so cradock himself the british account talks about uh, you know him being unrepentant 
Now, in his petition, uh, you know, of 1917, which people conveniently don't quote, he says that, uh, you know, among several other things, one thing that he says, if my uh, release uh, constitutes an obstacle to the release of uh, all the other prisoners, then you can omit my and release the rest of them, and that would give me as much pleasure as my own release would, uh, you know, give. So clearly, that again shows that he was not securing only his release, but the release of all the political prisoners in the jail, being like a spokesperson for all of them. They used to call him. bada babu uh, you know the the vilayati bada babu who's come from london who understands yeah. english who knows the nuances of the law and all that so that was one then if you also see the uh, you know writings of contemporaries his uh, fellow prisoners uh, most importantly sachindranath sanyal uh, who was also lodged in the jail and in his uh, autobiography mera bandi jeevan sanyal says that Savarkar used to advise all of us to write these petitions and i wrote a petition who bahu the same as he did but uh, i was released but the savarkar brothers uh, were not released for the same petition and he also gives the reason as to why that was done that uh, the british feared these people so much that they thought their release would ensure that the revolutionary zeal that had fizzled out in the bombay presidency that would catch steam again if they got back to bombay uh, and so that's why they wanted to keep him uh, there is what sanyal himself says uh, and lastly and more interestingly in 1920 when narayan rao uh, the younger brother goes to mahatma gandhi and says uh, you know both my brothers have been suffering for almost a decade now in kalapani uh, and now is the time the reforms have been ushered in the montagu chelmsford reforms and constitutional process has been kick started so can you please intervene and you have you have the good offices of the government and so can you intervene with the british and secure their release so gandhi himself advises Uh, narayan rao that uh, ask your brothers to file a petition and then he himself goes on to file a petition on their behalf uh, saying free the savarkar brothers they've been brave courageous people but you know they've strayed away into violence now they want to come back into the constitutional process and join maybe the congress uh, in its uh, efforts and so on so gandhi himself files a petition so petitioning itself for such a bad word uh, or such an act of cowardice then gandhi himself was doing that on their behalf so i think uh, all these different facts uh, when one places together and also as you said when one goes through the text and substance of the petitions itself which i have put in the appendix uh, things become clearer and of course there also there is such a lot of subterfuge where you know your most obedient servant or something uh, is taken out and that is highlighted in a 140 character tweet uh, which says see he is calling himself a servant and all of that now that was the template you know i mean that's Uh, the 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 way of addressing uh, the uh, government official your respected sir and your most obedient servant your hum- i mean that way most of gandhi's letters also start and end that way that doesn't make gandhi a stooge of the british so these kind of things need to be seen with a little more nuance and not with the uh, you know uh, the the zeal of the twitter yodhas usually have uh, because i think yeah. history is a little more complicated than 140 characters uh and so this petitioning business later on also continued i mean even people like ram prasad bismil and ashfaqullah and others they had petitions filed by uh, for them uh, when they were convicted in the kakori case uh, by people like madan mohan malviya several others who filed petitions for them so it was a very very normal uh, thing that that was being that was done all the time and it, as i said it continues to be done for hardened criminals even today Uh, terrorists and naxals and criminals who can file petitions presidential pardon that can be uh, got but the moot point is did the british believe uh, these petitions if they believed they would have let him off long back 
there was no need for him to keep petitioning repeatedly the very fact that till the very end the british had no trust in him uh, and they, even after he is released from prison in 1924 uh, he is given a conditional release that you know you can uh, spend um, you, you you have to be restricted to the district of ratnagiri uh, and to go anywhere outside that you have to take british permission and he is not allowed to participate in active politics for 5 years now that yeah. thing the, the 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 time limit is then extended from 5 years to um uh, 13 years from 1924 it goes on till 1937 it's only in 1937 when elections happen uh, and you know uh, the bombay state has a government that uh, nb khare who's the uh, elected prime minister he puts up a case saying you have to you know get this uh, restrictions on savarkar uh, uh, off the table and that's how the british find you can see so if somebody has been on your side he's your stooge why would you keep that person on, under house arrest for so long why would you not mm. co-opt them into uh, and reward them for being a stooge so th- there's also this whole talk that he was getting 60 rupees pension uh, from the british and all these type of things which again is very very uh, you know superfluous because not it was not only he was being given the special pension of 60 rupees it was all the people all several revolutionaries uh, in bengal and other places who had got released from prison were given the sustenance amount initially and there was a reason because savarkar though he was like a law graduate and he was a uh, he had done his graduation from pune uh, all his degrees were stripped off him and when he was convicted his entire property uh, you know uh, ancestral property his houses including utensils of the house were all confiscated by the government and auctioned off so when he was released back the he had to start life on a blank slate his family wife children i mean how do you eke out a living you can't uh, he asks uh, you know can i at least take up to practice legal practice because i am a qualified barrister uh, so that permission is also not given so how is a person supposed to uh, make uh, make a livelihood uh, and so most of the other revolutionaries also uh, faced this problem so this uh, pension that was given it was like an allowance saying till the time you you know set your how, life in order the british will give you some sustenance amount to to carry on with uh, life so and of course in his case he started writing extensively in several newspapers as a journalist that he was he started his own daily called uh, shraddhanand which was in memory of swami shraddhanand uh, of the arya samaj who was assassinated by a muslim fanatic in 1926 so he was writing for several other newspapers kirloskar kesri maratha and others in maharashtra and then you know the need to depend on an allowance was Uh, not there but just come to think of it when you have no degree when you have no job and you have wife and kids and uh, old parents and siblings and all of them to take care it becomes difficult for anybody to uh, eke out a living and that was the reason why this was done so this whole idea i think it's highly highly uh, irresponsible and uh, highly disrespectful of calling somebody who who along with his entire family suffered so much for this cause we seldom you know talk uh, i you know many people told me after reading the book that savarkar of course uh, we get an idea but also equally important is the role played by the women in his house uh, household his uh, sister in law yes. uh, yeshu vahini his wife yamuna bai and uh, these men so they went away to jail but what would happen to the poor women who were left behind and the yeah. uh, society was ostracizing them almost treating them as outcasts because they were condemned as the wives of a, of a, of criminals and even if they got into a, a, a horse cart people would walk away and they were that kind of 
um, uh, you know, social untouchability that they had to face. And so it was left to another woman, uh, Madam Hikaji Kama, who was in France. She used to send money from there to the Savarkar uh, ladies to ensure that they got some money to sustain themselves. So to somebody and to an entire family who suffered so much, uh, to just sit, you know, and twiddle your thumb on a on a, uh, a keypad and then say, oh, he was a traitor, he was a stooge, he got pension, without even getting into the facts and details, I think that is uh, that is being utterly stupid and uh, moronic. Couldn't agree more. And just to set the record straight, I think uh, Vikram has already said it. So you know, this this addressing the British world, Savarkar used to say, "I beg to remain, sir, your most obedient servant." S. D. Savarkar, because a friend of mine was reading this live, and he was like, "To Gandhi ka bhi padde, yaar. So I'm just doing him a favor, and I'm actually you know saying what you have said in the book. So Gandhi used to words uh, used to use words like, "I have the honor to remain your Excellency's obedient servant." or your royal highness's faithful servant it's just the way you used to write there man and you're so right i mean i mean come on you're clutching onto straws when you're saying oh he wrote this i mean come on gandhi wrote this everybody wrote this it's just ridiculous yeah. I, I, and so really, in, most of most often in the tweet there is this part that is uh, the the uh, it's cropped up the photograph and then highlighted just this and the arrow put on that say see he used to call himself most obedient servant so what was he and this and that so i think uh, i mean you can be intellectually disingenuous. That is a con completely your choice. But uh, the facts and truth is uh, unfortunately or fortunately otherwise. So. Yeah. So, so I have so many questions from the live viewers too, Vikram. So just one last question and then I'll take all the questions from the sure. live viewers because we owe that to them. So uh, just one last question because I, I can't let you go by without talking about the one thing that I was so fascinated by. Savarkar's mm. views on caste <laughs> and cow. Oh God. That man had strong views about both things. I mean, he, if there ever was a quintessential practical man, he was like, abolish caste. Basically, he was like, you know, this thing makes no sense, man. Just throw that. The best was that incident you told me. Everybody would tell me, we should not travel in the seas. And Savagar would just look at them. What? Not travel mm. in the seas? I'm going to mm. travel in the seas. I think it's needed. I'm going to go. He was a practical man. So can yeah. you talk about that side of Savagar? Yeah, yeah, true, and uh, you know that raises heckles uh, even now. Some of the issues that he spoke about, and so one can imagine how it would have been in the 1920s and 30s when orthodoxy was at its peak. So uh, his whole idea, the, the conception of Hindutva that he did in uh, jail, uh, largely as an answer to you know the the Khilafat movement that was happening in India at that time, spearheaded by Gandhi, uh, was was also to define. Uh, Hindu-ness and Hindu-ness or Indian-ness uh, being synonymous with each other, not by the uh, boundaries of religion or the uh, theology, but as a cultural, a national kind of an identity marker for people. And uh, in, as a that was a theory that he uh, propounded, but putting it into practice in the laboratory that Ratnagiri became in 13 years uh, that he was in house arrest there, I mean, stupendous amount of social reforms, which I cover in the volume two, where... Uh, He's talking about these uh, fetters that hold Hindu society together, Vedokta Bandi, Vyavasai Bandi, Shuddhi Bandi, Veti Bandi, all those uh, different things where intercaste dining, intercaste marriage, uh, you know, uh, with the first uh, cafe where people of all castes are sitting together and eating uh, in, a, in a time and place where even among the Brahmins of Maharashtra, the Deshasthas and the Chitpavan, the Konkanasthas would not sit together and eat because they thought one was more uh, purer than the other. So here you're talking about all castes sitting together and eating, Sahabhojan. And the 
first ever temple in india called the patit pavan mandir uh, in 1931 which is thrown open to people of all castes and communities and someone who actively supported uh, the initial temple entry uh, campaign that dr ambedkar uh, the mahat satyagraha and all of that that ambedkar ran so uh, who was uh, you know both ambedkar and savarkar their views on caste Uh, almost like you know nihilist who stood for a dismantlement of the entire caste system and the varnashram uh, system and so savarkar also i think i quote in quote him in the book uh, where i say uh, even in the bhagavad gita it says uh, krishna uh, supposed to have said that the chatur varnas have come from me uh, no doubt but they are based on gunas the qualities and not necessarily hereditary uh, so you we are all born shudra and then we uh, elevate uh, you know across the the chain of consciousness that it was it was not a caste that was uh, appropriated by birth uh, so a brahmin's son could be as shudraik in uh, his uh, you know nature and uh, quality and vice versa so so said there's nothing sanatan about the caste system because it sanatan is anything that is immutable which doesn't change whereas here if uh, those four varnas are then mutating themselves into so many of jatis and upajatis and subcastes and all of that that itself shows and you have a fifth varna of the untouchables so how is it that the this sanatan sanatan is something like which is the sun rises in the east is a axiomatic statement that doesn't change and that is sanatan so whereas if uh, the caste is the caste system can mutate itself into so many uh, uh, subunits that itself shows that it is not immutable so that was his argument and of course his whole uh, you know this thing on the cow which was the the bovine is not divine and and he was like i don't consider the cow worthy of worship we already have 33 crore de- devi devtas and so there's no need to add this uh, poor animal also into it and more importantly i think he was saying uh, even krishna was called gopala Uh, you know someone who is protector a protector of the cow not a worshipper of the cow so he says we become the animal we become the god we worship so if uh, you keep worshiping worshiping a very docile creature timid creature like the cow as lovely and affectionate as she is then you also as a nation as a civilization become that and he would always say that hindutva's uh, you know icon the god needs to be narsimha who is always ready to leap on the enemy and tear the intestines off so so and then he also quotes uh, i think episodes from history where uh, the cow was usually used as a as a shield by uh, invading armies particularly the islamist forces who knew that the hindu opponent would not strike back when they saw the you know a battery of cows standing in front of them so he said what of what use was it uh, to actually lose your country your honor to protect the life of some animal you know and when it comes to the life the honor of a human being and an animal i think the human being certainly uh, takes precedence and he further says that if you are hell bent on worshiping it please go ahead you uh, you know put a sari on it and take it and put it in your puja ghar also i have no problem but keep it as a uh, private affair in your house don't bring it into public domain don't let it determine public uh, policies and your uh, your your national strategy so to say you can uh, instead you being the both the rationalist as well as a utilitarian you know philosopher that he was says a cow is a very useful animal you know so like what the americans have done use modern american uh, animal husbandry uh, tools and techniques to ensure you have better production of milk uh, you use uh, the cow in a very humane way in agriculture do all that you protect the cow which is what krishna used to always talk about when I mean, he even lifts the govardhan parvat and so on so the environmentalist in krishna that he was do something like that rather than worship her to such a blind extent that you put everything and everyone including fellow humans 
and their lives in jeopardy so i would certainly think you know if he were alive and he would see these uh, lynchings that happen uh, i don't think he would have supported them at all and of course he would have also uh, the, the same person also said that uh, while i don't condone this sort of uh, behavior i also would like to condemn the deliberate attempt to slaughter cows which is done by certain communities just to spite the hindu sentiment and faith uh, so there needs to be a balance between the two i think that's what uh, he was saying so obviously kushal these were these are things which are so contentious even now in 2020 so in 1925 if you're talking that uh, you know later even when he uh, becomes the president of the all india hindu mahasabha in 1937 so many of his public uh, rallies used to be shouted uh, upon there would be stones would be thrown at him and all of that by two sets of people one was of course the congress which were his political rivals the other was uh, i mean the ahintavadi gandhi uh, followers throwing stones uh, that was the uh, you know juicy irony of it and then the other group would be the orthodox uh, associations who would say this guy is really you know exceeding his brief and uh, chitpavan brahmin himself sitting and doing this so because most of the rallies would also be followed by uh, sahabojan uh, where people would he would he would lead by example so including the ganesh utsavs we have ganesh utsav coming now so he would have an untouchable ganapati which uh, which would be consecrated uh, you know with the in the maharwadas the, where the mahars lived or the bhangis lived and everybody had to celebrate that festival together so can can unity among the hindu community be attained without eschewing our hinduness without eschewing our hindu identity you celebrate to to say i mean i think it was the opposite of what a, say periyar did saying cut off the sacred threads of everybody so everybody becomes non hindu uh, you know wash away that uh, that that symbol of oppression whereas savarkar would say i will give the sacred thread to everybody i mean it's no one person's uh, you know uh, jurisdiction nowhere in whichever veda it says that only the brahmins have to wear the sacred thread so he would conduct mass upanayans of everybody and uh, um, give the upadesh of the gayatri mantra to everyone so once everybody gets it then there is no uh, no discrimination that way also so you can either be a very destructive uh, approach of breaking uh, things or you can also get everyone together so which is what he did in his ganesh utsavs of untouchable ganapati go personally to the maharwadas do this what is happening now with swachh bharat abhiyan get those uh, places cleaned Uh, ask them uh, sing with them dance with them get them on to this thing and then get get the minds to meet and uh, and the other very important uh, factor that he would always talk about and i think which is important is a uh, normal narrative that we have today is it's like a pyramid a hierarchy where there was one upper caste or a, a, a brahmin oppressing the non brahmin or whatever so but then uh, you know the facts are otherwise that uh, and he lists that several uh, in several places that the hierarchy is there right down to the lowest caste so it's not as if uh, it's only one super caste which is sitting right at some top oppressing everybody who's coming but then the bhangi in maharashtra was the lowest the scavenger caste which is the lowest in the pecking order he or she would be uh, oppressed by the immediate upper caste which is the mahars so in fact in his letters to dr ambedkar he says can we start doing that that at the lowest strata uh, the mahar start allowing the bhangis to their temples start allowing them to use water from their wells which they were not so the yeah. mahars were as equally culpable of uh, inflicting caste oppression and discrimination on the ones who were below them in the food chain so uh, can we start cleaning up bottoms up rather than top down and then ensure that everything 
the entire funnel is then clean so he writes several such letters to ambedkar saying can that be a social project we can uh, because you are a mahar leader so in your community can uh, mahar temples be open to those subcastes which are below your uh, your your community which uh, sadly goes unanswered and you know no action gets taken so and then this narrative of everything being a top down approach i think that uh, is also not too too correct you know it's it's ironical and before i start taking the questions i just want to make a uh, comment and you know my good friend abhinav prakash he always says this he tells mm-hmm. me that uh, kushal if there ever was a progressive movement in india it is hindutva that is the mm. only progressive movement in india that actually tackles the serious problems in hindu society and literally grabs it by the neck and shakes it to its very core and says enough mm-hmm. is enough change this and when you listen to savarkar's views whether it's on caste whether it's on even consumption of meat like mm. he is like yaar tagde bano i mean basically he was like he was a practical man he's like meat khao tagde bano i'm not saying you are supposed to eat meat we live in the 21st century now we have many protein options now i'm not saying yeah. that but the man was such a visionary for his time is like yaar practical bano life mein tum log in cheezon ko pakad ke baitho main main ship ne mein nahi baithunga main ye nahi karunga i'm not going to do this i'm not he's like do you realize everybody <laughs> basically whooped your ass because of that <laughs> it's a visionary i mean yeah. so let's start taking a few questions i think some just one addition to that i think uh, i mean along with savarkar the other person who actually when you spoke about meat and so on it just came to my mind and this coming from a hardcore vegetarian <laughs> here but then you know the dr munje bs munje who was uh, also the president of the hindu mahasabha so both savarkar and he were all the time talking about militarization and you know uh, that more and more hindus need to join the indian army Uh, for two reasons one is uh, of course get trained in uh, in arms and make yourself tagda as you said and also ensure that this imbalance that was there in the indian army indian army was composed largely of muslims uh, and yeah. that's one reason why the viceroy was also being uh, so uh, you know um, partial towards jinnah uh, especially in the 1940s because that was where the the body supply was coming in terms of the uh, soldiers so if more and more hindus join the army um, one is they can be used for defection to the ina which is what happened eventually and secondly in, once the british leave the scene if there is if there is a case of a civil war uh, of the two communities then uh, the hindus should not be at a at a disadvantage where they don't they're not physically strong they've been so decap- decapacitated by this whole non violent movement that uh, you know they are just going to become sitting ducks for uh, islamist invasions so and yet again you leave the british and then you have a, a, a caliph you know taking over the country that would be a worse situation so that was the whole idea of uh, of ensuring that you know your militarized and munje himself uh, was i think a deshastha brahmin and then he would say that all of you should eat meat hindu should eat meat and get strong and join the army there should be compulsory military training in all uh, schools and so on so yeah when as i said i'm a i'm a huge animal uh, rights uh, lover and uh, a vegetarian myself so i don't think uh, that was that was the best way in terms of eating meat is not something that i hope gets propagated that oh savarkar and munje said that so tomorrow let us all do it that's not what we are <laughs> trying to propagate but then the the idea being uh, larger that you know uh, the, the 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 way the emasculation of the hindu society that had happened uh, due to so many decades of um the the non violence and all of that that they were fed to so 
this was like an answer to that and tying back to my earlier comment I, if we join the dots and see what then led to our freedom we actually know the the whole picture then becomes clearer couldn't agree more so i'm just going to take a few questions i think a lot of it has been answered so shantanu has said how relevant are savarkar's views on topics from pages 426 to 436 in today's india i think he's talking about your book he's read your book and the hindu unity on page 30 while he had an argument with a sadhu uh, when uh, he was just of the age 14 and then aditya says savarkar's courageous project like patit pavan mandir which you were talking about was quite a hope to dilute caste based animosity so why couldn't others replicate this project so why do you think they couldn't uh, replicate this project who uh, i mean and they were all doing it in their own ways i think ambedkar so in terms of views ambedkar and savarkar i say came very close to each other but somehow the two men though savarkar made so many entreaties to ambedkar to meet and so on somehow i think ambedkar always preferred to stay away they they uh, though they came from the same state um, and uh, that is where i would also say that you know gandhi was also uh, a very good strategist in terms of he understood the, the pulse of indian society and he knew that uh, these are these are uh, dogmas and traditions that have come down for centuries and they're just not going to go away in a jiffy like that by building a temple here a temple there it has to be a very slow process of reform uh, which he advocated so i mean ambedkar and savarkar were more of nihilists who you know kind of Uh, stood for a breakdown of the entire system and then rebuild the mansion whereas gandhi was looking at piecemeal reforms first to make that so first can we tackle the untouchability the harijan issue then look at something and gandhi himself supporting the varanasi system and saying that uh, you know he considers that as the bedrock of uh, hinduism and all of that so and then the way he uses religion in politics because he knew that religion cannot be Uh, separated from people's minds particularly in a society like india so whether it was invoking the khilafat for the muslims or all these you know uh, invocations to ram rajya or the bhajans and vaishnava janto and all of that uh, and getting to himself also this saintly aura uh, you know kind of uh, makes it more palatable to the indians to you know even today you have a religious guru who would probably draw uh, lakhs and lakhs and lakhs of followers much more than say a, a rational scientist who will sit and give a speech on how this is all superstition right so <laughs> that's how that's the short answer to it so your views may be perfect and uh, you know uh, rational and scientific but a lot of emotion and all of this uh, social drama needs to play which uh, i don't think that way this man was worldly wise at all true 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 So Siddharth has a few interesting questions for you. Siddharth says first he wants to know what did Savarkar think about the socialist inclinations and axis support in the revolutionary movement and what were his views about Periyar and the Dravidian movement. The first one I didn't get socialist uh, uh, the, the socialist it? inclinations of the and the axis support in the revolutionary movement. So there there were the, their inclinations yeah. towards socialism uh, and uh, their uh, you know kind of uh, i think their sense of you know their their sympathies to the revolutionary movement hmm. so in terms of economic uh, policy also i mean savarkar's economic policies are postulated uh, in his speeches when he becomes the president of the hindu mahasabha he talks about rapid industrialization a kind of a 
kind of you know capitalistic kind of a society which is uh, which is at the same time nationalized so everything the nation controls the national industry uh, a national exchequer so everything is uh, flows in and out of that concept of the nation being supreme the 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 importance that is given so even individuals are subsumed to the larger uh you know importance of the nation so and uh looks for this talks again and again about urbanization uh where industries and uh, uh modern science the machine age that is the only way for india and her society to uh, achieve progress uh that was his views uh, so so it wouldn't it could be i think a mix of socialism and cap, uh, capitalism a mixed economy which anyway eventually india adopted but in terms of the axis powers i guess the uh, the reference is to hitler and mussolini and all these people so i think initially uh, truth be told a lot of uh, so including when munje goes to uh, the round table conference uh, in i think 1931 or so i forget the date uh, he stops over and also makes a trip to uh, to italy uh, and um, meets mussolini and then uh, understands the way not only in italy but in france in other places germany and all uh, all over europe how uh, militarization and uh, military training is imparted in schools through cadet corps and cadet uh, organizations and actually writes uh, a lot in his uh, private papers and diaries uh, saying he talks about how this could be implemented in the rss in which he had a very important role uh, to play uh, munje along with hedgevar and in fact savarkar's elder brother ganesh uh damodar baba rao were among the founding uh, members of the rss and hedgevar was uh, was a was very devoted to munje uh, dr hedgevar and so uh, can so this fascist uh, th- 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 this inclination for the the fascist model of militarization was certainly there in those early years uh, of hindutva and i think even later on i mean uh, before the outbreak of the war in savarkar speeches too he says we should not be bogged down by all these isms here and there nazism fascism bolshevism and all these isms or democracy we are going to support uh, we are going to support the british because they are fighting for the cause of democracy against nazism it doesn't matter to us as long as it is convenient for us to win freedom we need to support anybody who is going to support us uh, you know so it uh, because churchill is as dangerous to india as hitler would be uh, you know if if at all hitler takes over india as what well. he said in his speeches so uh, let's not get emotional about these uh, political philosophies which mean nothing as long as we are a slave nation so use a dushman ka dushman dost so you know whoever is your enemy's enemy is your friend and if somebody is willing to help you then uh, uh, then you have to use that but once the horrors of the holocaust and the nazi uh gas chambers and all that started coming out uh the hindu mahasabha leaders were among the earliest to to kind of condemn uh the the gross violations that had happened and the human rights violations that had happened so initially yeah if it's a model that uh, that uh, inspires and attracts and you want to replicate a similar you know strong military for the reasons i mentioned as to why they were looking for militarization uh it was not just to uh for the sake of it but also to ensure that once the british leave if there is a specter of a civil war then how does the hindu society stand up to it so to for that extent the training and the military training was something that they propounded but uh, and uh, it is said that in june 1940 when uh, uh, netaji uh, subhashchandra bose met savarkar and they had a long discussion and it is recorded in the memoirs of 
Savarkar, Netaji, of course, doesn't mention this, that it was uh, he who inspired him to leave India because by then Netaji was also at the head of the forward block and uh, really trying to uh, get civil disobedience in order when the Congress was actually bithering and thinking whether or not to have it. Uh, the Quit India came much later. So he inspires him to leave the country and uh, join forces with Rash Bihari Bose, who was someone who was in touch with Savarkar for a long time. Uh, and then form this army and also go and meet the Axis powers where he meets uh, Hitler and Mussolini and others and forms this uh, caucus against uh, the allied forces, uh, particularly Britain, to ensure that India is liberated. So the end result, uh, what what is it to, for India that we can get out of it? It doesn't matter whether whom you support, etc., etc. But of course, individual acts of, uh, you know, um, human rights violation or uh, barbarism, that needs to be condemned. Yeah. So and what? Uh, so I, I don't know. What were his views on Periyar and the that that entire Dravidian movement, or did he have any views at all? Or uh, yeah, I, I don't think so. He had a lot of views. Even I, I don't remember him reading a lot on that. So one more interesting question has been asked. So do you have any ideas about the British collaborators infiltrating the freedom movement and becoming beneficiaries in the transfer of power post-independence? Do you have any ideas on that? Or or we can. I mean, if you don't want to answer that, it's fine. You can leave it to some other day. But. I, I know, I know what uh, what is being asked to be. Uh, <laughs> so I will, I will not fall for the bait. <laughs> and I think yeah. the, very, the very fact that the question questioner knows uh, the story is just trying to get it out from my mouth, and I shall not fall to such baits. <laughs> we know who are the collaborators. We know what they what they benefited, uh, or even as I said, the hierarchy of uh, punishment that was given. Uh, who got yeah. more, uh, you know, luxurious surroundings to stay and write letters to daughter father mother etc etc so that itself gives away a lot yeah so this is way this is actually a i think three questions are interconnected so i'm gonna connect them together so uh, obviously jotsna has written a comment and she uh, she says why do the youth fall so easily for the demonization of savarkar while uncritically accepting gandhi and nehru's as heroes that's more of a comment than a, and and how do we correct it but uh, and there's a follow-up which is very interesting. Ame asked, can you discuss Savarkar's relationship with the Congress and Ambedkar's view of Savarkar? So because these people are interconnected, right? They're all Congress se nikle, Congress se aaye, in, out. See, everything used to stem out of the Congress pretty much in India, right? Everything. And then they would be like, so so what do you think? Why do we have this mishmash in this country when it when it happens to these things? So to Jotna's question, I think why do the youth take it up take up so easily? Because they've never been given the truth, right? I mean, you can't blame them that uh, they have not been told the truth in as many ways and words and so on. Which is one of the reasons why we are doing this podcast, I think, so that more young people can actually know. And the reason why I continue to do my research and uh, continue to write uh, another volume on this man, so that. Uh, as I said, the truth comes out, the records are out there, and then people can make an informed, guided opinion, saying, you know, which side of the spectrum do they stand, what do... And it need not be taking sides. You can... There can be some aspects of Gandhi you can admire. There can be some aspects of Savarkar you can, uh, you know, adopt. And then it's it's like a it's a, it's a combination of several things. You want Everyone who's pro-Savarkar need not be an anti-Gandhi and vice versa. So I think... Because we are not actual protagonists who are in the in the play per se, we are now having the luxury of retrospection and seeing things uh, from the comfort of 73 years. So we can take that view uh, for sure. 
now the other one i mean uh, the whole his views on the congress and ambedkar's views on him that will be another podcast in itself but uh, in brief to mention yeah you're absolutely right so the congress was this umbrella organization which, which invited every shade of uh, opinion and till the time actually to be honest till the time gandhi's hold on it became more and more pronounced uh, so even till the 1920s till the time tilak and others were there uh, everyone including hindu mahasabha leaders so there were dual triple memberships you could be a member of the muslim league and also of the congress you could be a member of the hindu mahasabha and also of the congress this was like a national organization that was talking about political social cultural issues related to india and her people that's what the congress was but i think uh, once gandhi's hold on it and the small coterie that he uh, you know started building around him lot of people uh, started getting uncomfortable and started leaving including uh, people like motilal nehru and others who formed their own swaraj party so several out, uh, offshoots that started coming out of the congress as early as the 1923 24 where they were they were people were quite alarmed when the one movement that the congress actually did which was at the brink of success was a non cooperation movement and the way the uh it was uh, you know discontinued while it was at its peak just because some incident happened at chauri chaura i think that riled a lot of people and said we really built it up then the civil disobedience movement in the 1930 where uh, the way the somersault that happened with the gandhi arvin pact uh, a year later everyone including nehru writes in his memoirs that uh, was this the reason for which we we as a nation struggled so much and so many people went to jail and suffered all the Uh, tortures i mean we uh, you're now sitting and dining with the viceroy and then uh, having a pact with uh, with him so uh, so many disgruntled elements kept coming out and it is i think to savarkar's credit that the hindu mahasabha till then was just like a very you know in a, a body of flux it was not it was more of a religious cultural social kind of organization uh, again very very uh, wishy washy when it came to social issues including casteism and untouchability and all that because it was dominated by the upper caste uh, hindus so obviously they would not want or the land landed gentry so just like the muslim league which had the land uh, landed gentry uh, at its helm and as its patrons so uh, reforms land reforms or any kind of things uh, social reforms were not something that the hindu mahasabha actively propounded till then the very credit of building this as a national party uh, of reckoning uh, you know Uh, in the triumvirate so congress uh, muslim league and hindu mahasabha coming as one among these three that credit of that uh, goes to savarkar in the five just five years that he was uh, he served as president so when he was when even he was released also i mean it uh, from from ratnagiri the constant appeal to him was to become to join the congress so even during his release uh, in bombay there is a function that is organized and everyone from nehru to uh, subhash chandra bose to mn roy the communist party uh, leader and raja ji and others read out law. there are there are uh, you know citations from all of them saying you're such a brave man a patriot we're so happy to welcome you into the national fold and they were all hoping that he would join the congress uh, and he makes a very telling statement that uh, you know i'd rather be uh, you know in the last uh, line of the courageous patriots than being the first line of traitors and uh, you know i and he says the congress through its appeasement policy has 
literally betrayed the nation and so i would not like to be a party to this uh, treachery and so i have not joined the congress and that and he makes several disparaging remarks about the congress in several public speeches and that's why wherever he goes he is shown black flags and ink is thrown at him stones are thrown at him all that uh, you know continues when he was the president of the hindu mahasabha so uh, so positing himself and the hindu mahasabha as a very important uh, political force and also constantly this whole thing that he was um, you know talking to the british viceroy it was obvious because the british viceroy never till then it was only the congress and the league that he was talking to linlit go so uh, it was uh, savarkar who opened those channels with uh, with the british saying we are willing to let hindus join the indian army in big big numbers uh, provided you consider us as you know one of the key spokespersons of the hindu side and so obviously the hindu population is much is the largest in the country so yeah. the british were quite happy that you're getting another force uh, which is going to give you a lot of uh, you know uh, people to the army and also using them in their typical divide and rule as a bulwark against the congress which was claiming to be the sole representative of hindus muslims depressed class everything uh, you know in one go so uh, they were looking at options to hedge their bets and that's how the hindu mahasabha also entered in some way uh, you know in the negotiations uh, at the viceroy's uh, table so that mm, i think credit of making it a very vibrant party which was also winning elections local elections and all of that uh, and having a strategy having annual sessions where manifestos were made their plan of action for the next year was done that was something that uh, this man managed to do all right so i guess we we can't take this ambedkar question on because that's just too long I, I, and i agree with you uh, and um, and uh, even uh, there was a sub question that was savarkar active in politics after the british left i think there is no i think he was never inactive in politics to be very honest even even when he was in jail pretty much i mean he was trying his best to stay active in the freedom struggle as much as he could but one question i think we have to address before we wrap things up is which apurva has asked and i think it is again the biggest uh, grouse against savarkar right that was savarkar anti muslim if he was can we contextualize this to that time the given the politics of the muslim league and in the 21st century dispassionately concede that such views are irrelevant and thus to be rejected so how True. would you answer that True. so i mean these labels that we have you know is contemporary labels islamophobia and all these things i think it's very it's it's uh, it's difficult to put that and look at it retrospectively and force fit it to a situation of that time and so usually say if people think that savarkar was a muslim hater they really need to read what dr ambedkar has written Uh, on islam and also about muslims particularly in his book pakistan and the thoughts on partition where he says islam is a closed corporation and you know its benefits are only for their followers the allegiance of a muslim is not to the country of domicile but to the larger ummah the brotherhood uh, and an, uh, uh, being an indian and a muslim these are they cannot uh, reconcile itself because the allegiance is always to some other country and darul islam darul harb the two uh, you know domains that uh, the muslim theology divides the world into so these are ambedkar's thoughts so they were all operating in that context you know but then i think what and that's where one looks at savarkar too and not from today's things saying anti this or anti that because that was the prevailing mood of the time and particularly in the run up to partition uh, 
this becomes all the more pronounced and uh, so but then what is more important is one looks at his speeches as, again as the president of the hindu mahasabha where he says this uh, behemoth that is created out of the so called hindu rashtra uh, that is going to gobble up all uh, religious minorities and so on so he says uh, very clearly that his conception of a free hindu rashtra is one uh, whose constitution doesn't make any discrimination uh, among uh, among people on the basis of religion caste community creed gender etc where everybody is equal in the eyes of the law uh, the majority does not get any extra concessions on virtue by virtue of being a majority and similarly the minority will not get any extra privileges by being a minority he says the our non hindu brethren even if they have a ghost of suspicion in their minds Uh, that you know their religious cultural or linguistic uh, freedoms or uh, you know uh, views would be tampered or would be infringed upon they need not have such a uh, fear at all because the state would ensure that these are uh, these are uh, enshrined for everybody and if any attempt is made to uh, to infringe upon that the state will intervene to ensure that that is taken away so uh, so everybody being equal and then the it talks repeatedly about the welding together of a political entity on e- on basis of equality for the hindus muslims christians anglo indians all communities of the country uh, into one political unit which is hindustan so uh, that being the case this whole idea of equality secularism where there will be no appeasement and he also says uh, you know the government can go ahead and actually give grants to say madrasas or uh, church run institutions or subsidize something here and there but then the amount that goes to a community should also be a percentage of the tax that that community pays to the national exchequer so if you are helping the country and its economy as a return you get some benefits for your community but if you are a burden on the society and on the rest of the country then just subsidizing you does not uh, make for any utilitarian uh, move for the government so a very very you know unemotional very logical rational kind of a thing where and time and time again the whole thing that is hurled upon him that you know he and jinnah were the same and he propounded two nation theory which is totally false because the two nation theory was done way back by sir sayed ahmed khan and then how uh, even poets like mohammad iqbal eulogized the concept of pakistan and so on uh, he, and he says uh, jinnah and i are completely different people because jinnah asks for separatism a separate state whereas i am asking for equal equal concessions to all equal privileges to all nobody gets anything special including the hindus uh, and so there's no there's no uh, it's not at all correct to equate the two of us as being two sides of the same spectrum he says of course there are two nations within india uh, and that i he says that because he says as long as there is a section of the muslim community in particular which uh, looks at this world like ambedkar said you know this darul islam darul harab and and owes their allegiance to the larger umma or the brotherhood universal brotherhood and not to india as long as that is there there are going to be two nations within uh, within india uh, yes. and once that goes then it can be welded together into more harmonious existence and there may be to to some extent to mollify the earlier questioner ambedkar uh, does not appreciate savarkar's views on this where he says it's illogical and it's quite queer uh, to to the to take a position like this where he says on the one hand he says there are two nations on the other hand he wants both the nations to stay together how is that going to be possible so ambedkar actually becomes quite a proponent saying let them take what they want and leave because these two communities are have a civilizational battle it's not british divide and rule or anything it's just been a long uh, history of turf and struggle and it 
nothing has been done to heal those wounds so they can't coexist together so let them take their uh, piece of flesh and leave and so that uh, you know the rest of uh, the people can lead a lead a peaceful life is what ambedkar also proposes and he calls savar there is savarkar and the hindu mahasabha till the end even when the congress was uh you know doing double dealings with the british and with the uh muslim league on actually giving pakistan away on a platter uh these the mahasabha and savarkar were strongly strongly opposed to the creation of pakistan and to any vivisection of the motherland so uh, which actually ambedkar actually uh, opposes savarkar in that saying you know two if there are two nations a mi- major nation and a minor nation inside there are only two ways that history has taught us that you can control that one is the major nation subjugates the other one culturally politically in all sorts of ways whereas here savarkar is allowing them to have all of that they can continue their own they can have their flag they can have their culture they can have their language whereas that will be like a ticking time bomb which is sitting within the major nation of a insurrection or a civil war the other option that a major nation can have is to cut off part of it and give it to the minor nation saying you now secede and become an independent entity of your own and leave us in peace so that according to ambedkar was a better view and that's why he criticized uh, you know savarkar for pressing on to the uh, to pressing on against partition despite acknowledging that they were these conceptually two nations within it within india uh, there's no merit in then continuing to live like that or right, i just one last question uh, before i let uh, let you go vikram so when is the second book of the biography coming i know <laughs> this is something i get asked so often almost on a daily basis is at least one question and i'm so grateful for that you know the love for also the the fact that people are waiting to hear his story and honestly i would have wanted it to come out by the end of this year but thanks to covid and the lockdown uh, as you would Uh, empathize kushal the the, the uh, work like this would entail a lot of travel a lot of yeah. uh, research and to uh, visits both in within and outside india to libraries and archives and so on now with everything in a shutdown mode uh, i've not been able to complete a lot of my research work particularly even outside of india and in those crucial years leading up to partition and independence and all of that so rather than do a slipshod job of uh, bringing something out quickly uh, but it being uh, you know short on facts or on documents and so on i thought a little extra time which i can plead from the readers and ensure that hopefully by the middle of next year is when we hope to bring this out uh, J- uh june july 2021 is what uh, penguin my publishers and i have uh, reworked the timelines but yeah in the interim the, the there's actually the the hindi translation of the book is uh, being undertaken right now so i think that should come out earlier also uh, marathi and telugu and other languages too uh, i think penguin has been working on and there's an audio book as well on audible which uh, those who don't want to read a 600 page book but want to hear it i think they can go and check that out also so uh, in the run up to the volume 2 i hope all these other things uh, can uh, can be can get going and once again i'm i'm really apologetic about the fact that uh, uh, it's taken so long to uh, get the other volume out but corona was really not in my hands <laughs> yeah yeah that that's just uh, that's just uncontrollable so so guys I, it's time to wrap things up before we wrap things up i just wanted to make a few last comments that when i and i say this again i insist if you've not bought this book buy it buy it read it make everybody in your house read it if you've bought it read it 
I would say buy it again and gift it to someone. Gift it to a friend. Gift it to a family member. I have done it. Let me tell you, I have bought this book and gifted it to people, and I literally tortured them. कि ये पढ़ भाई, ज़िंदगी में और कुछ नहीं पढ़ रहा है, ये तो पढ़ ले कम से कम तेरी आँखें खुलेंगी. And uh, look, I'll not hide my views. I have never been anti Gandhi. I have always been a person who has found something nice in Gandhi, something nice in Ambedkar, something nice in Savarkar, and something nice in Bose. And I don't. Um, I have never been a fan of this quote mining that we do on Twitter. I don't like this idea. I mean, if you're really a scholar, then do a meta analysis like Vikram did. Vikram basically went into the archives and did a meta analysis and pointed it out. And that's how you should uh, do it. Unfortunately, in the age of internet and Twitter, you know, आपने एक quote पकड़ लिया, आपने उसको ये बोल दिया. That's not fair. These people had their own contributions, and we yes, history will judge them in their own unique way. Like we. When I did my podcast with Tripur Dhaman Singh, if you guys remember, when it came to free speech, nobody gave a damn about free speech in India other than Shama Prasad Mukherjee. Even mm-hmm. Raja Ji and Ambedkar deeply disappointed disappoint us when it comes to the subject of free speech. So, are we going to judge them in a particular way? So, when it comes to personalities, we have to be more nuanced in that. And you know, Vikram, I, I am so grateful that you have taken up this project because it. So, I don't know how to say this. हमारे देश में कोई सीरियसली कोई चीज करता ही नहीं है स्कॉलरशिप इज सो टार्निस्ड विद देयर ओन ब्लडी बायसीज एंड ऑनेस्टली आई आई एम समवन जस्ट टेल मी हु द मैन वाज आई डोंट केयर वेदर ही इज लाइकेबल बाय मी और डिसलाइकेबल बाय मी बट दिस एवरीथिंग इज टेंटेड सो seriously or from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of each and every listener and viewer of this podcast i want to thank you for you know taking this project up for savarkar and uh, and all power to you thank you thank you kushal that really means a lot thank you so much and i think what you said was very pertinent while not resorting to tweets and so on which i mean it has its own uh, importance too i think and you know i i remember i made a tweet uh, in response to the famous twitter handle uh, true indology and i told him or her or, or that you know that uh, please don't waste your time on twitter and get things published uh, book published because you have such a fund of knowledge lot of people came down on me like a ton of bricks saying it's not a waste of time it is giving us things in a nutshell which is also i think has its merit uh, maybe uh, i should stand corrected because uh, there are facts that can go out through different mediums uh, but then uh, t- tweets now are also fleet so it just goes away in very ephemerally whereas a book will last uh, for long and lots of other things can come out of a of a documented version like a book uh, maybe uh, you know portions of this book could be culled out into blogs which people can write so yesterday as i said it was madanlal dhingra's uh, uh, martyrdom day so uh, someone could just write a blog on that and put it on twitter use the social media that way but based on a lot more facts okay for some people uh, quick fakes you know uh, do minute ka maggi that also is, has its value uh very quickly you want to see a thread which has all the talking points which probably helps even the people who appear on those uh, noisy news debates where you're given half a second to uh, you say yes or no so that way uh, maybe it serves its purpose but in the larger run for a for a national narrative for a for a lasting sort of a uh, you know legacy that one could say i think books through uh, blogs through comic strips through now web series and a host of other things that one could see films uh, dramas and all kinds of things that could be done out of the base is a book and that needs to be there in place and out of that many things can then come out but yeah sadly they all expect even the author to be doing all that which uh, then becomes very tough saying i can't 
boss i can do research i can write a book i can't produce a movie i can't act i can't dance i can't do all of that so uh, <laughs> that becomes very difficult to expect the uh, author the historian to be doing all of that so i think there are different people who can take up different aspects of this and ensure that the message reaches out it is uh, and as jyotsna has said the youth of today will then not be so easily uh, you know uh, brainwashed into thinking what they are thinking right now i i couldn't agree more with you and this is why i do long form podcast because people you know people always tell me are kushal bhaiya aap 10 minute mein video bana do 5 minute mein video bana do bola bhaiya 600 page ki book hai tum mujhe kehte ho ki uska 10 minute mein main nichod nikal dun bhaiya 600 page ki book padhne ko mujhe 4 din lage uske baad main author ko bulaunga usko prashn puchunga to bhai mere ko kam se kam 1.5 ghanta 2 ghanta to do usko nikalne ko aur uska nichod nikalne ko tum to yaar mujhe 2 ghante bhi nahi de rahe ho so this i i i couldn't agree more with you so so guys time to wrap things up if you like what i'm doing over here look i try to bring you guys the best possible conversations with the smartest people we have around and i try to do my job i ask uh, ask them the uh, questions that to the best of my ability and you know it's a tough job these are long form conversation it needs a lot of uh, a lot of effort so if you like what i'm doing over here please subscribe to the podcast like the video share it If you like what I'm doing at the Charvak Podcast, please become a member of the YouTube channel. Please become, uh, if you want, you can join the Patreon page. You know uh, what we are doing on the Patreon page. We are discussing books. We are discussing religious texts on Saturday. So you know you can join that and gain some more uh, introspection. You know, if you come to Charvak Podcast, you only get long form. You don't get short form. You get deep dives. You don't get short dives. So. on that note i'll uh, i'll leave you guys uh, for today until next time namaste take care goodbye